I haven't been sleeping, and you've been having nightmares. I've been having nightmares, yeah. I go to sleep, and the darkness creeps in. It's kind of like an out-of-body experience, but you just go below into the mattress where all the scaries are. Yeah, no one ever talks about that. It's always your your spirit rises up out of your body. No one ever says, and then there I was in the hospital looking up at my butt. Journos, a stream of consciousness news podcast with Stephen Jackson and Brandon R. Reynolds. When you look out at a city, Stephen, who do you think it's for? A city. Who's a city for? The people. Yeah, but is it really? I mean, if you are in a big city, say Los Angeles, Mm -hmm. particularly Los Angeles, the dominant life form in Los Angeles, it's not a person, Stephen. It's uh, It's not even a coyote. Probably some kind of fly. In all reality, it's probably some insect. Well, probably ultimately, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's it's some kind of bug that will figure out a way to devour us. But no, it's the car. The city is built for the car. Mm. And has been so for about 100 years now. Yeah, ever since Roger Rabbit, actually. Ever since that documentary, <laughs> Roger Rabbit. Every bit as good of a movie as Chinatown. Yep. Fight me. Fight me on that. I won't. I'm not bad. I'm just drawn that way. Yeah, it's a city that's built for cars. This is not a particularly controversial opinion. If you live anywhere where you are trying to walk around or where you're trying to cycle, you will realize that there are a lot of obstacles. And it's so funny that we have passively accepted the dregs of that, right? Like, well, we deal with congestion. We deal with a rising number of accidents, Mm -hmm. fatalities, all of this stuff. We just accept it as like, well, this is the price of doing business if you want to like live in civilization. So today we're going to talk about who the city really belongs to. Is it for the humans or is it for all the stuff that's in there. And Stephen, to start today's episode, can I remind you that I used to live in Richmond, Virginia? Uh, Sure. I used to live in Richmond, Virginia. Oh. Yeah. Uh, One of the things that Richmond was known for, in addition to the band Guar. What? Yeah. And Pat Benatar and some really good food. Also, a lot of big public art. Lots of murals in Mm -hmm. Richmond. There's a big art school there, Virginia Commonwealth University. And it produces artists who enjoy to make the walls their canvas. So anyway, there's a big public art scene there. Recently, Stephen, some artists painted some art on an intersection. All right. A street intersection. Like on the ground, right? Like right on the ground. Yeah, right at the intersection of... Brook Road and West Marshall Street in Jackson Ward painted a lovely mural. This mural, Stephen, was funded by an organization called Bloomberg Philanthropies. Like like Michael Bloomberg? Yeah. Michael Bloomberg, former mayor of New York City. Former presidential um, candidate. And presidential candidate to the stars. <laughs> He's got a philanthropy. So a couple of years ago, Bloomberg Philanthropies was choosing cities for this project. They called an asphalt art initiative where they provided grants for cities to paint murals on the streets, Mm -hmm. on the sidewalks, do maybe some little parklets, all with the idea of seeing what it was going to do to traffic, Yeah, Stephen. 
So they wanted to see if by activating these spaces with art, it would draw drivers' attentions more clearly toward these pedestrian zones, right? And so it makes sense too. There's an asphalt, you see, you know, thousands of them any given day for driving of a car, but suddenly if one of those intersections has art there, you are going to notice it more than another intersection, right? And so it sounds like it worked. It definitely worked. Yeah, so what happened? There's a traffic research firm called Sam Schwartz Consulting, and they did a study of 22 of these cities. And here's what they found. There was a 50% drop in crashes involving pedestrians or cyclists and a 37% drop in crashes that led to injuries. So overall, looking at the intersections in all of these cities with asphalt art, there was a 17% reduction in the total number of accidents. So it's considered a big hit. Yeah. So Michael Flynn, Schwartz's National Director of Transportation Planning, recently told Axios that it's, quote, all psychological and that traffic engineering is a social science. And essentially, you want to change driver expectations. So anything that will constrain their field of vision would ultimately cause drivers to realize and understand that they're entering an area where they may encounter a pedestrian. And that also worked for pedestrians who themselves were crossing into the roadway. Apparently, after the art was painted on the streets, pedestrians were less likely to cross against the light or to jaywalk. And so you saw less obviously of a chance of there being an encounter, I think, as they call it, with a car. (laughs) An encounter. Yeah, that's a nice euphemism. That's like friendly fire. A lot of euphemisms in the the infrastructure transpo game. What caught me about this story was that it seems like it's kind of an inversion of a story that we've told for a long time about marking up city streets, right? Like, obviously, there's a long conversation about graffiti. And then in the last couple of decades, a conversation about street art and how there's a value to that. And the tension has always been between, well, but streets are supposed to be clean the transportation authorities are the ones who determine what colors you're able to use and how, and all of that is designed for your safety in mind. And so this idea that you're going to put art unregulated, basically, as to content and color and approach on streets, and it has a positive effect, really flies in the face of decades of urban planning. And it sort of puts it back on the actual user of the space, the driver, the pedestrian, And so there's something really inspiring and kind of heartwarming about the fact that, like, we'll act better if you give us art. And for anybody who works in street art, it's like, no, no, duh. Obviously, things are better when you have more art in the space. But to have a measurable effect on safety and on the way people perceive this kind of public space, it's just wild. It's wild. Blows my mind, Stephen. Yeah. It goes without saying that having more art around in public spaces is generally a good thing, right? Uh, it definitely activates these spaces in a different way. It kind of makes makes them less bland and dreary, all of these wonderful things. The problem is, uh, what if you don't like the art, right? So it, suddenly, at least if things are all these regulated colors and shapes and numbers and everything, it's like, okay, that's it's the roads, it's the street or whatever. But when people get to decide what art goes where, then suddenly you could have just like a super lame mural that you have to pass by every day. And so, you know, that that can get a little bit annoying, right? That's right. If Bloomberg Philanthropies had ended up giving a grant to an organization and their whole premise was, we're going to paint a giant donkey's anus on the street itself. Wow. 
And it's really going to get people to stop and think about the relationship between pedestrians and cars. Uh, yeah, then some of that might have blown up. I'm pretty sure that there was a proposals process where you had to submit what you're going to do. And if you look at the art on the streets, it is all very charming. It's very bright, very colorful, yeah. very dynamic, not offensive. So definitely there is a a appeal to a kind of general aesthetic. That that's a, That's a good point. This study finding that there's benefit to having any kind of art in an intersection in terms of public health and safety. The fact that it has demonstrable use, that in a way starts to trump the aesthetics of the art, right? Because like, for me, if you could tell me like this super dangerous intersection, you know, almost 20% fewer people are now getting injured because of that lame flower in the middle of the intersection, I'll be like, fine, keep the flower. (laughs) (laughs) right and but extremely critical but sure well sure so at the opposite end of the spectrum of beautifying an intersection in order to make it safer is kind of a more traditional practice of cities increasing fines and punishments for driving erratically or misbehaving in the name of public safety it's kind of this old school view of crime and punishment, right? And the way that we need to regulate public behavior is by making the punishment for certain behaviors increasingly worse. Therefore, people will be more afraid to engage in those behaviors, and we should see uh, a benefit to public health. Right. Make it punitive. Make it punitive. So mm-hmm. there's nothing punitive, well, to some, to me maybe, about a lame flower in the middle of the intersection. If nothing else, it's better than the black asphalt and less people are getting hurt, right? So I like it because it starts to point to this larger trend of trying to understand human motivation and behavior and trying to also be aware and accepting of the fact that humans are extremely flawed and imperfect animals, right? And so if we understand that that is the case and start to create policies based on that understanding, you start to see a different type of solution. Yeah. And all this comes at a time when humans are being more and more fallible than ever, apparently. According to a Bloomberg story, accidental deaths and injuries are on the rise skyrocketing according to the story it says quote accidents killed 173,000 people in 2019 by 2020 the accidental death toll jumped to more than 200,000 so this story goes on to talk about the state of utah mm. in which the governor lowered the legal drinking limit from 0.08 to 0.05 that's crazy that's like not that's like you look at a beer yeah oh yeah you look at a beer you have a sinful thought about a beer and you're affected by it. Mm-hmm. State doesn't do much else. There's no PSAs, nothing like that. Nobody even knows that this law has been changed. But crashes go down, drunk driving incidents go down, and sales of alcohol, Stephen, increase. Mm. So you think, well, this is some kind of magical booze trick. Well, a magical booze trick. I like that. Yeah, yeah. It's like Chris Angel making a fifth of whiskey disappear. That's right. Yeah. Like if you imagine a Chris Angel themed cocktail bar in which, you know, in order to get your drink, you have to sit inside of a glass orb for 48 hours. (laughs) And then finally, they'll release a gas that you can breathe and it tastes like sour apple or something. Yeah, that's called the mind freak. There are so many elements of 
even like 10 years ago that you look back on them and you're and it just feels like it was a whole other world everything's different yeah. Yeah, we're jaded in a way now. Certainly. We're jaded against the sort of torn pants and the kind of daytime vampire look. It'll come back. Utah's selling more booze. Yeah. Everybody's having a good time. But magically, so it seems, people are doing better. Well, what happened? According to the Bloomberg article, the state expanded its transit systems. There were more bus lanes, mm-hmm. there was more frequency of rides, and they gave drunk college students free transit rides. So in contrast to your point about how the traditional approach has been punitive, mm-hmm. set up these rules, tell people here's what the penalties are if you break them. This just anticipates people are going to get drunk. We need to be able to meet them where they are. Yep. And in doing so, all of this good comes of it. Certainly. So it's a whole other idea about human behavior, which is not to design for the people you want, but to design for the people you have. So design infrastructure around drunks, basically. Yeah. I mean, there'd be a lot of funny looking buildings, too, if we really like extended that all the way. No, Stephen, drunks don't design buildings. You design stuff for the behavior of the inebriated like all these mismatched windows and like uneven floors and stuff like that i think you're missing it's not like you send a bunch of drunk people to architecture school and you're like here you go and if you can draw a straight line then you're in i don't know man you go to those architecture schools they're they're, they work hard play hard design harder yeah okay yeah this story is good because it (laughs) uh it encapsulates everything you just said perfectly utah did both things they increase punitive measures, right, by reducing the blood alcohol level for DUI. And then they also created all these other options for safe transportation. And it's pretty clear that it's the latter that was more effective, right? So the proof is in the pudding right there. In terms of, okay, let's design things not for the people we want, but for the people we have. We see this happening in another area of society and it's been in the news in California this week because there is a bill that is up to promote and create these safe injection sites. And so those are basically places where drug users can go to use illegal drugs in a place where they can be monitored. There's public health officials there. There are more options for treatment should people seek to get help. And it's in the name of reducing Overdoses. As we know, the overdose problem in America is a severe epidemic. Most of it's fueled by fentanyl-laced drugs. Just last year, more than 10,000 people in California and more than 100,000 people nationwide died of overdoses. And this isn't just on the streets. This includes at parties and at home. So Hmm. the whole idea of this harm reduction philosophy around drug use has to do with saying, look, people who are severely addicted to really hard drugs, by making the punishment work, they're not going to stop doing drugs and they're just going to die, right? So we need to be meeting people where they're at in order to provide a pathway to a, a solution to a problem that is is not going away and is actually only getting worse. And now if you cock your ear and you listen very carefully, you can hear just off in the distance a roar coming toward us. Mm-hmm. It's getting louder and louder. Oh, yes. Yeah. The roar of the moral majority saying, you can't do this. This is encouraging bad behavior. If you give 
students free rides home, they're just going to get more drunk. If you give injection sites, people are going to inject drugs. Yeah. That's a one-to-one, baby. Yeah. So uh, it also what always inevitably happens here, and this this is where things do get more nuanced, is folks will conflate these examples of harm reduction with like being soft on crime. Yeah, the concept here is called moral hazard, where you're encouraging people to do this immoral behavior by condoning it or even facilitating its safe consumption, whatever. So not only is it free tram rides for drunk kids, it's also distributing naloxone, which is the medication that stops accidental overdose. Yeah. So in a very literal sense, some of these safeguards are actually beneficial, not just to people who you may believe need them, but they're beneficial to all of society. You think about an ADA ramp at a building that needs to have a guardrail. So it makes sure that all spaces are more inclusive for everyone. But if you are an able-bodied person and it's a little icy that day and you slip and you grab that guardrail, well, you just benefited from that inclusive building practice. This is actually something that we see in education, too, in the form of something called universal design for learning. I was a special education teacher for 10 years in San Francisco. I feel very strongly about all this stuff. And uh, universal design for learning is very cool because it's kind of this overarching idea of how curriculum in classrooms should be designed so that all learners can benefit from the teaching that occurs in those classrooms. So universal design is really a framework. You need to offer multiple means of engagement in order to tap into your learners' different needs, right? So it can't just be a lecture. can't just be a book in multiple choice. You have to be coming at people in various ways because everybody learns differently. Now, that benefits special ed students. I know that for a fact. But it also benefits students who aren't living with any disabilities because everybody learns different. But if you employ that, it's not like all of a sudden you have this siloed place where it's like, oh, special ed's over here and general education's over there. Everybody benefits from this. Everybody benefits from the fact that there is a ramp up to the library with a guardrail in it from time to time. Similarly, everybody can benefit from this type of design of classrooms. Yeah, when you put it in the context of schooling, it really reminds you how much of that is prescriptive, how much testing and lesson planning and all of that stuff is designed with kind of one type of think or one type of person in mind. Mm -hmm. It's all about this idea of there being this idealized citizen that, you know, is a concept of the 20th century or before that, you know, who knows, the Puritans came over and they said, Everyone must have yeah. buckles on their shoes. If you don't have buckles on your shoes, I don't know what the hell's wrong with you. And everyone you. must wear a funny hat. But yeah, exactly. This ideal citizen who stops at every crosswalk, who only has a glass of champagne at a wedding, and who is able to attend school promptly at 8 a.m. every day and listen to a lecture and you know regurgitate that information in the form of a five-paragraph essay or multiple-choice test, right? And a person who's never going to struggle with drug addiction. But it's like this holdover of us, this idea that everything has to be one way. And if there's one thing we're certainly seeing in the beginning of this century is that everything that we once knew is is sort of out the window. And we're seeing like crazy change. We don't even go to work in offices anymore. Exactly. And I think that's a really good point because the city also operates as this 
metaphor for the way that we think and do. Like, well, we go to the trouble of building these roads. Well, you should use them. Well, if society changes and we don't need to use the roads in the same way anymore, now what happens? And you see things be repurposed. Like in New York, you have the High Line, this extremely popular, much beloved park that used to be the elevated train there. That idea of repurposing, of what else we can do with space when we don't need it anymore, that rewards people for being people yeah is something that resonates really deeply and is catching on i mean you see more and more of those kinds of little projects bubbling up even if they're just the little parklets at street corners where there's a bunch of pavement we can't do anything else here so let's put in some planters with some orange trees or whatever it is but it also feels like we're really swimming against the current still thinking like everything must be utilitary and everything must be functional mm-hmm and so too must the people that we've built this stuff for we built it for you now why can't you match us and be utilitarian and functional too and so a lot of the stuff we talked about today the drunk driving adaptation the universal learning is all designed around again meeting people where they are but then to go back to the public art that's an evolution beyond that a little bit because it's not saying we know that you're flawed and we're going to offer you a safety net. It's saying, we're going to reward you just for being a person. Mm. We're also going to understand that human psychology works in a particular way, and you're going to be attracted to bright colors, and therefore you're going to be more careful. But it integrates the idea of meeting people where they are with this kind of more idealized version of what a city can be. Totally. And that it, in, in a weird way, it also brings up a persistent question about the utilitarian nature of art or should art exist only for itself and in it of itself and in a weird way by painting that crappy flower at the intersection right like God, if, i, I won't let it go man what it, kind of flower you think it is like that a, you hate so much? I, like 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 a like a yellow one like a brown I inside i don't know just do like you a, think a lame do you flower. think the art are you, are you objecting to the flower itself yeah. like the kind of flower or is it the execution of the flower it's, is your problem with the representation or with the artist doing it's just, the representation? It's, just a, it's not a great flower okay but what i'm saying is if it has use right if that flower prevents harm to people suddenly that piece of arts has a different and greater value even though it's painted poorly in my mind yeah, yeah clearly Unfortunately, of all the art that we've talked about today, yeah. the one that we're all going to remember the most clearly yeah. is our own version of Stephen's crappy flower. <laughs> yeah, you know, which again, I think it, I like that flower in spite of the fact that I think it's lame. I still like it. I'm not going to paint over it because of that 17% decrease in accidents. Okay. Well, clearly this program now has to meet you where you are. As a total snob. Total asphalt snob. Yeah. Which I always knew about you, Stephen. This has been Journos. It surely has. I'm Brandon R. Reynolds. And I am Stephen Jackson. See you next time. See ya. Journos is produced by Heather Eagle Ears Wilson. <laughs>